All right, peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of hot nonsense from Instagram and without Dre. Lots of gems, lots of Wing Chun in MMA, again. Lots of why is Wing Chun the most criticized martial art in the world when it's really not? Let's get to it. And every day I practice martial arts. Watch out. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining me on a special episode of the Kung Fu Genius. As most of you guys know, in the last few months, it's been really difficult for Dre and me and Mikey to get together because, well, Dre's become a bit of a family man living out in Jersey. Mikey's been really busy with work and I've had tons of projects on my plate. So that's the reason why kind of in the last month, month and a half, uh, we've had some streamed episodes, some episodes that kind of don't follow the normal format. Uh, this one is kind of one of them, um, but I hope to deliver. Obviously, I much prefer having a conversation with my boys around, but this week it was just not in the cards. So that's why I decided to do a special Instagram-based episode and leave the YouTube questions for the next time I get all the boys together. So I uh, put out a little feeler on Instagram today just to see, hey, what questions do you have for me to answer on a, a special podcast? And got some really, really great questions, and I hope... I can fill out this time and give you guys a good entertaining podcast, even though I don't have my normal crew here. So thanks for bearing with me and I hope you guys enjoy it. So as always, don't forget, if you want to support the Kung Fu Genius, the best way to support us is on Patreon. You get access to episodes early. You also get my special Instagram subscriber only content. And every now and again, I'll throw up something there that uh, I don't post openly on uh, YouTube. And of course, it's a uh, pipeline to talk to me and uh, chat me up and ask me any questions and to also get any questions you might have uh, for the podcast kind of fast tracked into the podcast. So um Let's get to it. So the very first question I got here, and again, these are YouTube handles. So um, their YouTube handles I find are a little bit more obnoxious than, uh, um, or sorry, Instagram handles, I should say, I find are a little bit more obnoxious than uh, YouTube handles. So I apologize if I get some of these wrong. Some of them are okay. Some of them are a little bit difficult to pronounce. So I apologize if I get your uh, Instagram handle wrong. So the first one we got is from Three Treasures Kung Fu. Not too odd there. Uh, great question about how do you deal with the quote unquote establishment after you or your Sifu breaks away? Well, this is a really great question. This is uh, something that kind of happens perennially in Chinese martial arts, but also in traditional martial arts and also in any kind of big organizations too. Even in modern martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, there have been all sorts of things where, you know, one instructor leaves a team and then opens up shop somewhere else and then this creates a problem. So this is not a problem, I would say, that specifically um, afflicts Chinese martial arts or Wing Chun, um, but it's just a matter of whenever you have an established group with some kind of hierarchy, an instructor, you know, a role model, someone at the top, and everyone follows them, and one person breaks away and does their own thing, whether they do it for good reasons or they do it for bad reasons, there's usually going to be some stress. There's usually going to be some, well, let's be honest, there'll be some shit talking, usually going both ways, and some hard feelings, and then either that will just die out or that conflict will arise and will never, ever end. So I've been in this situation myself, and um, so I have a, a bit of experience dealing with it, and I also 
I'm a huge fan of history, so I look around, I see how other martial arts schools uh, and establishments have tackled this problem and have tried desperately to learn from their failures, which for the most part, uh, martial arts schools, especially Chinese martial arts schools, generally tend to fail this test. So um, a number of years ago, as many people know, I had a big spat with uh, my former teacher, Sifu Langting. I left Sifu Langting's organization in 2011, and as soon as I left, I basically just established uh, my city Wing Chun school as its own independent martial arts association. I started to regroup, come up with my own uniforms, and I still more or less teach the WT that I learned during that time. But I had a chance to modify the teaching system and change some policies and make things that I feel are a little bit more fair. But one thing I didn't do was go in the magazines and start talking trash about my former organization or kind of going and telling everyone how horrible they were or, you know, whatever the reason was. I did, however, have um, residual hurt feelings after having left. Um, I, uh, I resigned from the association because of politics, internal politics for, from the U.S. association. I didn't quit because of Sifu Langting or any other reason. It was just uh, put a long story short, the managers that uh, he kind of put in place here in the U.S. are pretty insufferable, not to mention they were not at all successful in their own right, yet they were telling the big successful schools what they should do and how they should do things. And so it just got a little bit intolerable at some point. So I left and that was it. Uh, and I, you know, still felt a little upset about kind of how the whole thing went down. But after about two years, I basically got over it and just went full steam ahead, focusing on my own students, focusing on my own program. I mean, ultimately, it's not about the just the person you follow or your lineage or your style. The school is about the students. It's about the students who come in. Do they get value from your training? Are their lives improved from what you do? Um, do you have a good atmosphere? Uh, is there a good vibe at your school? These are the things that are important. These affiliations and things like that, these just... These are things that are only martial arts geeks concern themselves with. Uh, most people, even during my time as a member of Sifu Langting's association, people didn't join my school because I was a, a member of the IWTA. They joined my school because they came in, they tried an intro lesson, they liked it, and they joined. The only time I would get people because I was in the IWTA is if people visited New York who were from other IWTA schools, which, by the way, after I quit the IWTA, that didn't stop. I still have plenty of IWTA people who come and visit my school, plenty of EWTO members. So plenty of people from the official learning organization still come to City Wing Chun to this day. So leaving Sifu Learning's fantastic organization actually didn't even hurt me in terms of people visiting my school from those associations. And the people who join your school locally join your school because they like your school. So what I'm saying is there's nothing actually to worry about. The establishment, uh, in this case, it seems like, I don't know if this is a hypothetical question or if this is something that Three Treasures Kung Fu is going through at this time, you know, but how do you deal with the establishment after you or your Sifu breaks away? The quick answer is you don't. Uh, martial art associations, mine included, have literally no power over anyone. We are not governing bodies. We cannot decree suddenly that someone is not qualified because they're no longer a paying member of our association. That doesn't mean associations won't try to do that. 
I famously had a spat with Siva Langting, which I alluded to a moment ago in 2016, where after I had done a, um, a magazine or newspaper article for uh, Apple Daily, which is a uh, no longer in print, is a very long running, uh, basically it's a gossip newspaper. It's kind of like a New York Post type thing. If you guys local to New York uh, kind of catch my drift, it's kind of a bit of a gossip sensational news magazine. And uh, it's in Hong Kong. And they did an article on my school. And it was a very innocent, innocuous, it was a puff piece. Oh, here's this white guy teaching Wing Chun in New York. And it was around 2015, 2016, I think. And uh, they asked me one question, which was, you know, how uh, how do I feel uh, or what do I feel is the difference between the way Chinese martial art instructors teach Kung Fu as opposed to Western martial art instructors teach Kung Fu? And of course, this is a very difficult question because that's a spectrum. I mean, you know, for every single traditional Chinese Sifu that teaches in an old crotchety, unhappy kind of way, you have tons that are teaching in a modern way with a great atmosphere, great vibe, including in Hong Kong. So it's it's impossible to say all Chinese Sifus teach this way, all Western Sifus teach this way. There are Western Sifus who are total tyrants and way worse than any Chinese Sifu or their own Chinese Sifu ever was. So these questions are already kind of tricky and they're already kind of non-starters. So um, one of the questions was, you know, what was the difference between Western and Chinese Sifus? And I gave an answer. I said, well, you know, it's impossible to say for sure for the aforementioned reasons, but some Chinese Sifus view their job as uh, kind of a keeper of the gates, okay? Behind this gate is this glorious Chinese martial art that you want access to. You want all the secrets, you want all the movements, techniques, all that stuff you want to be qualified. And in order for you to get all this secret, awesome knowledge that is right behind the gate behind me, you got to go through me. So you have to do the right propitiations. You have to do the right things. You have to make me happy uh, in certain respects. Give me money. And then if you do the right thing and always, you know, call me Sifu and this, that and the other thing, I'll teach you a little bit more, teach you a little bit more. So I said some Chinese Sifus do not view themselves as a service provider. Uh, they view themselves as kind of a keeper of the gate. So um, that's all I said. And um, that line seemed to have angered Sifu Langting for some reason. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure why. I think he thought maybe I was attacking him personally. Now, if anyone knows Sifu Langting, Sifu Langting is definitely someone who is more on the commercial end of uh, Chinese martial arts. And of course, most people think immediately negative about that. I don't mean that in a negative way. If you have something good, something of value, something of worth, yeah, you can monetize it, right? The fact that a Sifu who's really good doesn't monetize their Wing Chun doesn't mean that their Wing Chun is better or worse. It, these are separate facts. But Sifu Langting, for whatever reason, thought that I was taking aim at him and then printed this ridiculous uh, counterattack in uh, Apple Daily newspaper stating that I had only learned Wing Chun from him for one week, despite the fact of years of internet existing. And you can see how much time I had spent with him. I was even in uh, one of his Chinese books and we had done also. But anyway, it was it was a very ridiculous thing. And I said, well, hey, if he said I only learned for one week, then I must be able to learn all of this Wing Chun in one week. I must be some sort of Kung Fu genius. And I said that in a very tongue in cheek kind of way. And that's where the whole thing came from, because I said, you know, the Kung Fu genius. And then my friends in Hong Kong started saying, hey, Kung Fu genius. And then the thing kind of stuck. By the way, for anyone who thinks that I use the, the, the nickname Kung Fu genius with any bit of 
sincerity or seriousness really don't know me at all. Of all the Chinese martial arts instructors that I know, uh, especially in Hong Kong, I wouldn't even rate myself in the top 15 or 20 in terms of just sheer knowledge. Let's forget about skill. I, mean, I just spent a week with Sifu Carson Lau last week in Toronto, who was one of my teachers during the time in IWTA, um, to get a brush up on my double knives and like my head was blown. So I, 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 I don't even... Um, I don't even consider myself in the top 20 of people that I know in my personal circle in terms of knowledge and skill. The, the word Kung Fu Genius is, is or, or I should say the nickname Kung Fu Genius is done for pure irony and pure sarcasm. And it really came out of this kind of baseless attack from my former teacher in a Hong Kong newspaper. Um, but having said all that, that was kind of the extent of what the um, IWTA tried to do to me, unlike some of the other adherents uh, who had left the IWTA and apostatized or became apostates. Um, some of them, Sifu Langting went after really hard. Um, Sifu Amy Bostepe, so on and so forth. They got it way, way, way worse than I did. And, um, you know, so I can't say that like, oh, they were totally attacking me. They did try to Photoshop me out of a long pole group photo. Um, a guy named uh, Mike Adams tried to Photoshop me out of a photo to pretend somehow I, I suddenly did not learn long pole. And he forgot to Photoshop the end of the tip of the pole. So uh, there was a mysterious missing spot. And then this tip of a long pole floating in space. It was hysterical. Um, but anyway, besides that, I mean, that was just funny. I mean, there, there's there's a saying which is never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. And uh, so I just kind of sat back and laughed at most of that stuff. Um, so I would say, how do you deal with the establishment after you or your Sifu breaks away? The quick answer is, you just don't. Who cares? They don't have any power. And if they say something and they attack you or they attack the credibility of your school and you go back at them, well, you just gave them credence. You just gave some legitimacy to their attack. And, you know, as my good friend Brady Hall, who's a great filmmaker, once said, I don't give a shit because I don't give a fuck. And that's kind of how you should look at these guys. Take away their power. Take away their ability to hurt you with words. And what do they have left? They have nothing. They're standing there with an empty sack and bitter feelings. So uh, who cares? Do your own thing. Are you teaching your students well? Are you practicing Kung Fu thoroughly? Are you broadening your mind? Are you improving your skills? Are you trying to better the lives of those who come to you to learn? Yes? Okay. Then who cares what anyone else has to say? These people have no power. Uh, but great question. Um, oh, by the way, and out of my own experience, you know, when I left the IWTA, I also uh, adopted a few schools uh, that didn't come up from from me. They were other former IWTA schools who went and joined my association and they lasted for a few years, but it's pretty obvious that the quality isn't there and the ability to change someone's Wing Chun that's been training for years somewhere else is way harder than just building up students from scratch on your own. And so they ended up leaving and I'm fine with that. Uh, I, I never made an announcement, oh, so-and-so left my association and they're no longer qualified or whatever, because I don't care. If they feel that they can do better on their own without my help, I'm totally fine with that. More power to them. And um, I that's also when I instituted the policy of the only instructors 
who can open schools under my association are instructors who came up through our association from the beginning. I'm no longer adopting strays, as it were. Um, and since adopting that policy, uh, we've had nothing but growth in our schools. And I have a few smaller schools, but they are all quite established. And they're actually brick and mortar schools as opposed to uh, studio location somewhere, teaching out of a dance studio or somewhere. So I, 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 that's how I kind of solved it. Rather than attacking people who left me, if people want to leave me, that's totally fine. It's a free country. Do whatever you want. Um, I had no reason or right to attack them for wanting to do that. And uh, yeah, so who cares? Uh, great question. All right. So the next one is from Avdevi. Uh, and Avdevi asks... Wooden dummy used by other Kung Fu styles. So if I can talk a little bit about that. Um, well, I did make some mention uh, about this in my uh, newest book, uh, The Wooden Dummy, available available at citywt.com slash shop. Link is below. Uh, it's a 300-page thick boy about the uh, uh, WT wooden dummy form in Hong Kong uh, Wing Chun wooden dummy. Um, and I do talk a little bit about the development of the wooden dummy uh, in the book. I have one chapter dedicated to that with some photos of some of the different wooden dummies that are used uh, in the other styles, uh, primarily Hong Kun and Choi Lei Fat. The, the Hong Kun dummy is um, rather similar to the one we use in Wing Chun. And the Chile Fat dummy is actually quite a bit different. It, I think it even has a moving arm or a, like, kind of like a lever type thing. And the best person to ask about how to use the Chile Fat dummy would probably be my good friend Sifu Brian Cuddle. You can find him on Instagram. He also has a great YouTube channel, and I'm sure he's got some videos on there. He's got so many videos where he has these tutorials on how to use, um, you know, he teaches different forms and weapons and things like that. I'm pretty sure he has something on there uh, regarding the Troy Le Fat dummy. Uh, remember that uh, more likely than not, a wooden dummy was originally created as a tool, uh, something to kind of mimic an opponent standing in front of you uh, when you didn't have a live opponent to train with. So as you can imagine, none of these wooden dummies, whether we're talking about Wing Chun or Hong Kun or Troy Le Fat or other styles that may also use dummies, None of these actually had for, started with formalized sets. I mean, if you are a um, enthusiast of martial arts in the 18th century or the 19th century and you cobble together out of wood some kind of wooden dummy uh, for purpose of practicing your martial art, I doubt very highly that the first thing you would do would be uh, say, oh, I need to create a form to do on this thing. You would go on that thing and you would start practicing and you would start doing things in a more organic and loose kind of way and working on techniques, maybe just repeating one type of movement again and again to develop some conditioning or power. And then maybe you start combining one or two of those movements. And then over time, you might develop some kind of flow, almost like a live interactive sparring with this dead piece of wood. And then over time, this could formalize into sets, especially if you decide that you want to teach this to someone else. Then it's really in the project of teaching to other people that the genesis of forms even became a necessity because if you're just going to practice martial arts for yourself well then you don't need forms you just need practice uh forms are uh, a a convenient way of codifying information for the sake of giving it on to uh, the next generation or to your students. Um, but it also has the, the trappings of sometimes then people think the form is more important than the skill that the form is trying to impart. So um, it's a bit of a slippery slope. Now that's a little bit off topic, but um, in terms of the individual movements, I once learned some movements from Mac uh, 
uh, Chi Kong. Mak Chi Kong is a Hongar master, very good friend of mine in Hong Kong. He has a wooden dummy in his gym, which is very similar to a Wing Chun wooden dummy. Um, just uh, the arms are a little bit different. I think it even has an extra arm underneath or sometimes it is like another arm where the leg might be. Um, and he showed me like a, a, a short set from Hong Kun. Um, now, I don't know if that's a formalized set or if that's just a grouping of techniques uh, that he then showed me how to do on the dummy, but that was a lot of fun. And um, there are obviously some uh, parallels to Wing Chun in there as well. Instead of doing a bong style with your fingers together like this, you might do it in kind of more of a tiger style with a, with your hands in a, a claw shape as opposed to kind of straight fingers like a bong sao, wu sao shape. Um, so you'll obviously see parallels with these kind of things and... The question is, why are those parallels there because of the equipment or are those parallels there because these styles are so close to each other or is it something a little bit of both? So, um, yeah, there's plenty of resources out there on YouTube. Type in Choi Lei Fat Dummy or Hungar Dummy and I'm sure you'll find some great videos to see how some of our Kung Fu cousins out there um, use this training tool to practice. Um, great question, though. And uh, yeah, do talk a little bit about that stuff in my book, The Wooden Dummy, the absolute bestseller so far. How would you like to go to Hong Kong with the Kung Fu Genius from August 21st to the 27th, 2023? Experience Hong Kong like no one else. Take the ultimate Hong Kong Kung Fu tour with live commentary from yours truly, the Kung Fu Genius. Visit hot tourist spots as well as off the beaten path locations, perfect for Wing Chun and martial art enthusiasts. If you ever wanted to go to Hong Kong to see Wing Chun sites, movie stuff, and of course experience this amazing city, here's your perfect opportunity. Packages include seven days of seeing the sites with me as your guide, and for those who want some training, a Wing Chun seminar with me and with Sivo Mak Chi Kong is part of one of the offers. The packages include the best insider tour of Hong Kong you can possibly get. To reserve your spot, click on the link in the description of this episode for all the information you need and for booking. Spots are running out fast, so get yours today. Once I reach the cap, I will close the registration, so don't wait. Again, click that link in the description to get booked for the 2023 Ultimate Hong Kong Kung Fu Tour. And I'll see you in Hong Kong. Uh, okay, next question is active underscore Michael. Uh, what's your thoughts on Krav Maga? Uh, I don't really have thoughts on Krav Maga. Um, I'm just going to say one thing quickly before that, though, uh, just so that you understand it's not um, it's not a diss on Krav Maga. Um, the Internet and uh, social media and the medium of commenting, and the medium of instant gratification. You ask someone something online, you want an answer right away. You often get questions are, what's your take on XYZ? What's your take on this? What do you think about this? And this has given people the pressure to believe that it's necessary, especially if you're someone with a social media presence, to have an opinion on everything. Okay, so in other words, the fact that people ask me, hey, uh, Kung Fu Genius, what are your thoughts on, in this case, Krav Maga? And I have to have like a like an elevator speech about Krav Maga, ready, polished, ready to go. Okay, bop, 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 this is what I like, this is what I don't like, this is what I think, this is bop, 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 bop. And um, that in itself is a bit of a fallacy because uh, our life is finite. If you live to be 76, 77 years old, that's 4,000 weeks of your life. Uh, as a 45-year-old, I've lived 2,300 weeks, 2,300-something weeks, something like that. So I'm well past the halfway point, most likely, in my life. 
And when you have kids and you have a business, my business is martial arts, and uh, you have a finite amount of time to train, to read, to study, to spend time with your family, to make money and earn a living, uh, you cannot possibly have a well-crafted, well-thought-out opinion about everything. But the pressure from the internet and from comments, uh, in my opinion, makes people have opinions about things that they otherwise don't really think about. They just feel because someone asked me online, well, I have to give them an answer because it's almost like call-out culture, right? Even though that's not the case here. It's just, what are your thoughts on this? And then the idea is that in the marketplace of ideas that I've studied all the different potential ideas to an equal degree and um, have then therefore in my case, decided on Wing Chun, having looked at everything on balance. And no one is that way. A high-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner didn't necessarily go through every single martial art uh, and study it in depth or at least have an understanding of all of them before settling on this. We, we join the things we do because of accidents of fate, because of culture, because of biases, uh, things that we like, things that we don't like, and of course, the schools that we join. We like the schools we join, so we join it. And after the fact, we justify it with logical reasons. But uh, martial arts, like the like sales, sales is an emotional thing. You buy things because there's an emotional feel and attachment to it. And after you, you want that boat, you want a car, you want that, that piece of clothing, you buy it and then later you create a justification that's logical so that it doesn't seem like as a human being, you're just solely uh, um, operating at the whims of your emotions. And so um, I have looked at Krav Maga, I have seen Krav Maga training, I have seen Krav Maga videos, I've seen some stuff in Krav Maga that looks similar to Wing Chun from a technical standpoint. Um, I've seen stuff in Krav Maga that is very different, looks almost just like plain old cardio kickboxing. And then I've seen some stuff which I thought was really intelligent and I saw some stuff like machine gun defense which I thought uh, maybe, maybe it could work but uh, I don't really know if I'm ever going to be in this situation to have to stop someone with an AR-15 pointing at my head. It's possible, but it's it's not my wheelhouse. There are a lot of combative martial arts out there, military-based martial arts. Um, even within the world of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if you're going to teach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for police officers, you have to teach a very specific segment of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu techniques that are for law enforcement, uh, particularly with restraining someone and controlling someone. And there are lots of things in jiu-jitsu that you can't do as a police officer. So even when you take a martial art like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I think is really good for uh, police officers, um, you're also taking a segment of it. All right. So uh, when it comes to like Krav Maga, um, I see there are certain segments of it which are super, super applicable for self-defense and other elements which I think are maybe not as good. But that's my personal opinion. Um, on the whole, on balance, I the question is, what are my thoughts on Krav Maga? And the answer is, I don't really think about Krav Maga. And that's not to say that I haven't looked at it or I haven't seen some of this stuff. I know Sifu Burton Richardson from JKD Unlimited uh, actually uses some Krav Maga stuff in his self-defense and his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for the street and uh, in some of his weapons retention stuff. And I think that stuff is really good. But I also think it's good because it's been filtered through what Burton Richardson does. And I like his framework and I like his mindset. Um, so I don't know if that's... Uh, a plus for Krav Maga per se, as much as I like 
Burton Richardson's presentation of certain elements of it. But I don't actually spend that much time thinking about Krav Maga. Um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Elvis death conspiracies either, even though I'm a huge Elvis fan. Um, I don't spend a lot of time... Uh, I don't know, analyzing the careers of uh, Buddy Holly. And there's so many things I don't think about. And if someone were to ask me in the comments, um, I I sometimes have to give a dissatisfying answer that, well, I, I don't really have thoughts on Krav Maga. Um, all right, next question. Kung Foolery 97. Uh, if Bruce Lee was six foot two, how would JKD look or his expression of Wing Chun? Uh, well, this is a hypothetical, um, better than any Dryson hypothetical, I would dare say. Um, well, it's very difficult to say because this is speculation. I mean, uh, uh, even me being a quote unquote Wing Chun expert or kind of a Bruce Lee enthusiast, uh, doesn't mean that any answer I would give on this question would be remotely correct because we also have to understand this would still be Bruce Lee's understanding of Wing Chun after about a year and a half or two years tops of Wing Chun training, which would mean that even if he were six foot two, he didn't, that wouldn't have meant he received any more Wing Chun training than he otherwise would have. Um, he probably would have had less of difficulty dealing with William Chang as William Chang was a relatively tall guy for uh, for a, uh, a, a Chinese teenager at that time, he was like 5'10", 5'11", um, when most of the other Chinese guys were 5'6", 5'5", 5'7". So William Chung had a tremendous size advantage. And I think that, um, you know, not to kind of slaughter any sacred cows here, but I also think that being the bigger guy was also a big part of William Chung's fighting prowess as he was younger. He was just kind of the bigger bully. We used to have a guy in our school named Eugene. It was this big, strong guy, just, you know, super jacked, but very strong, thick neck firefighter. And um, he was, uh, you know, I absolutely enjoyed to teach. Super, super cool dude. Um, but he just had massive amounts of power, massive amounts of strength, which meant that even some of his uh, training partners who might have been a little technically better than him had to struggle with him a little bit because he just had this massive physicality. It allowed my senior students to practice on someone who was so physical and so strong. But I sometimes in my mind, when I think about what a William Chang was like back in those days, I think he was kind of the Eugene of the Yip Man school. And so I, I, I tend to believe that a lot of his fighting success and prowess did have something to do with his overall size difference. So now if we gave Bruce Lee that size difference, uh, being 6'2", uh, then I think it probably would have played out uh, more similarly. He might not have needed to be maybe as technical as he was able to be uh, with what limited Wing Chun he did learn. When I look at Bruce Lee's Wing Chun Chi Sao, especially in those videos with Taki Kimura or the demonstration videos I see. Obviously, he's got one foot forward. He's using a kind of rear spring leg forward pressure framework. So the framework's a little bit different from more classical Wing Chun. But what I actually see him doing, with the exception of a couple cool foot sweeps and trips, which uh, generally come in more advanced Wing Chun, which I think are pretty badass, I see a pretty basic Wing Chun. And that is not a knock on Bruce Lee. The most important cheese out we do is the fundamental stuff. You're more than likely going to use the things you learn at the beginning of the chi sao program, the basic palms, control, step in, roll over, fax out, the elbow presses, those kind of things, lap sao, stuff like that. 
Then you aren't necessarily going to use the crossover Popeye from Wooden Dummy 6 uh, because you're very rarely going to find a partner who's able to press you into position where you need to pull that rabbit out of that hat. So um, when I look at Bruce Lee's Wing Chun, I see that it's, it's kind of basic. And again, that's not a knock on him, but I also think that was also more or less at the limits of what he had learned. He had really polished the little Wing Chun that he had learned, which someone who had learned the whole system might still use that much, but they use it with the broad idea of everything that's available in Wing Chun and understanding that there are other ways of cracking that nut, so to speak. So I don't know if Bruce Lee's Wing Chun would have been more refined. It might have been less refined because he could have uh, used his physical attributes to um, uh, to dominate his partner more so than his technical issues. That also might have um, given him less of, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure if Wong Jack Man would have challenged a six foot two Bruce Lee. Um, because I think they would have, I mean, I really imagine in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, you have a six foot two Chinese martial arts practitioner built like Bruce Lee. The, I think he'd be pretty intimidating for most people uh, just to be that size and to have that kind of physicality. Um, now, when you go to Hong Kong and you go to China, the, the, the average height of Chinese is much, much taller than it used to be. I mean, I'm five foot seven. I'm the exact same height that Bruce Lee was. And when I go to Hong Kong nowadays, I feel like a short guy, even in a room full of Chinese guys. Uh, so it's the average height has definitely changed over time. If uh, but back then it would be very rare to have a Chinese of that height. Um, Moyat, famous student of Yip Man, was I think six feet tall. Um, but if Bruce Lee was six foot two, wow, that would have changed a lot of things. I think he he would have been able to be way more physically dominant over his Western opponents. Uh, he would have obviously had more power with the extra weight and limb length. Um, so that's a very curious question. I don't even know from what angle to tackle that hypothetical with because they're, that's really quite layered. Um, uh, it, you know, depending on his understanding of Wing Chun, there might have been a slight difference in um, technique choice. Uh, obviously, for those of you who are listening to me on audio, uh, you're not going to be able to see any of this. Um, my podcast is not a teaching podcast. It's a conversational podcast. So I, I very rarely actually show and do Wing Chun movements there. But just to uh, give an example for those of you who are watching, um, there's a, a difference. Uh, there, there are two types of Pak Sao. Um, well, there's multiple different types depending on how you break it down. But basically, there's a Pak Sao where you punch over your Pak Sao hand. And there's a Pak Sao where you punch underneath your Pak Sao hand. In order to keep these things straight, in my school, I generally call the Pak Sao where you go over your arm, which is the one most people know. I just simply call that Pak Da, Pak Sao. Uh, when you slip under your arm, we usually call that a side palm. Because that one ends up being a little bit more like a slip in boxing just with a hand there to protect you. So there's a slight different vibe, whereas the Paxo goes forward with the intention to clear an obstruction and open a line. The side palm is more just kind of a, like a like a insurance policy while you're slipping a punch to the side. There are photos of Bruce Lee doing that quote unquote Paxo with a punch underneath. Um, when you're a taller person and you can, it's a lot easier to go over the arm of your opponent. So that's why even in my school, uh, my taller students, when they're facing a shorter student that's giving them a punch to the face, it's easier for the taller student to swat that punch down and punch over because they're coming from the, the you know, to quote, 
Star Wars, the high ground, all right? When you're a shorter person, however, and a taller person goes to punch you in the face, if you were to pox out that hand, you would have to push it down, wait to clear it to then go over the top, which is going to make your reaction too slow. If that punch comes from above towards you, you could slip it and simultaneously fire that punch underneath, and uh, that would be a better option for someone who was shorter. So it's possible that if Bruce Lee were six foot two, he may not have needed these kind of actions so much as he could just swat things down with his Paxo and kind of climb over the arms of his shorter opponent. Um, but that would just be one minor technical thing I think might change a little bit uh, with different body types, limb length, weight, uh, range, all that kind of stuff. There is naturally a, a difference in technique selection regardless of style. And that would certainly be the case with his Wing Chun, in my opinion. Um, the one curious thing is that if Bruce Lee were six foot two, and let's just say he did everything more or less, let's say in this alternate universe, multiverse timeline, Bruce Lee is six foot two. He still just learns about two years of Wing Chun from Wong Sun and Yip Man, comes to the States, teaches all the same guys, more or less follows the same career path. There might be some technical differences between that six foot two Bruce Lee and the five foot seven Bruce Lee. But let's say more or less these parallel timelines work pretty much the same. It's just in one Bruce is six foot two and more physically dominant. He probably would have to get other co-stars. Uh, to fight with him, otherwise he would just look bigger than everyone. It wouldn't look, it wouldn't look that interesting. The bigger guy just swats away all the uh, smaller guys. I think that is part of the charm of Bruce Lee is that he was the small guy fighting these bigger guys, like you know Bob Baker and Fist of Fury and so on and so forth. Um, but I'd be very curious in that alternate timeline. Bruce Lee still dies in '73. Um, if the conversation about Bruce Lee's efficacy in um, mixed martial arts would have been the same because, uh, you know, they're always going to say, oh, I never saw him fight or oh, there are no fight fighting records or blah, 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 as if people, you know, in the 1950s and 60s had these fight records that are comparable to an MMA fighter of, of today. Um, it would be interesting, though, if Bruce Lee were a more physically dominating person, like if he was our six foot two, built like a brick shithouse. Um, if people would be like, well, well, I don't know, maybe that Bruce Lee might be different. Of course, if Bruce Lee were fighting in MMA, he would be fighting in his own weight class anyway. So the the, the argument is kind of silly because, of the you know, a 125-pound Bruce Lee would be fighting in flyweight and, you know, a 185-pound or 205-pound Bruce Lee would be fighting in middleweight or light heavyweight. So um, it, 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 it's still kind of the same argument one way or another. But, um, yeah, people do respect size. People do respect that a lot more. And I'd be curious if the, the lens by which people look at Bruce Lee now, especially the younger generation that didn't go, grow up with Bruce Lee and they're more prone to criticize him because they just don't know, um, you know, what he was actually like or they just think he was just a movie star that didn't know anything about real fighting. Um, you'd be curious to see if that perception of Bruce Lee would be different. Um, but uh, yeah, great question. Interesting hypothetical, but uh, these hypothetical thought experiments are are difficult to tackle. Uh, but I like them. It's it's. Uh, I think these things uh, broaden the mind a little bit. Uh, the next one is underscore J Wu. Is Wing Chun of any style practiced anywhere for ring fighting now? Um, well, certainly not at City Wing Chun. In my school, I focus on self defense, and uh, we do pressure test that self defense with, you know, with equipment. And and from our senior students, we want to make sure that they really can do this stuff if someone is fighting back. So we uh, we focus more on the practical fighting aspect. 
uh, self-defense aspect and not so much the ring fighting aspect. Now, I say this, there's a there's a fallacy between sport versus street, okay, that people say, well, sport fighting, it's in the domain of rules and regulations, and on the street, bro, there are no rules, man, on the street, man, I'm just gonna let loose, and I'll kick you in the groin and jab out your eyes, and all that kind of stuff, and um, although I, the, the, the first part of my answer was to say, at my school, we focus on self-defense, we focus on practical aspects, and also the martial art aspect, that's not to say because sport fighting or going into the ring would somehow make my students unable or unable uh, to defend themselves on the street. I think some of the martial artists who would be most capable of handling themselves on the street are people who are at a really high level in a multitude of sport martial art disciplines. You can't tell me that a high level Thai boxer from full contact Thai boxing, because that's a sport that still has rules, uh, wouldn't be able to handle himself in a bar if some dude tried to grab him. I mean, that is a really ridiculous and fallacious argument. Um, same thing with um, even within the jiu-jitsu world. Now, this is a legit argument within the jiu-jitsu world. You have people like Henner Gracie and the Gracie Academy in Los Angeles that at least for their Blue Belt program, which is their combatives program, they really focus on the self-defense aspect, which is actually something I really appreciate about how they do it. It's kind of like to earn your first belt there, you need to know how to use your jiu-jitsu against someone on the street who would try to attack you with a haymaker or grab you or just try to wail on you with punches, how to get in close, clinch, tie him up, wear him out on the ground and go for the most common submissions and be able to escape that. Once you have uh, a thorough understanding of that and you've earned your blue belt, from what I understand, then in the higher belts at the Gracie Academy, then they explore more like the sport jiu-jitsu, sport grappling aspect of it, um, which would include tactics and submissions and things like that that you wouldn't necessarily do if punches and kicks are involved, right? If you are doing sport grappling and you're not worried about the other guy punching you or elbowing you, well, you can go for certain trans transitions and certain takedowns uh, that uh, don't take into account that if the guy could punch you, you would be open. So there is a little nuance to that, but that's not to say that someone who just learned sport jujitsu and never did any type of jujitsu that involved strikes. Wouldn't be able to just straight shoot in, take you down, put you on the ground, and tie you up and choke you with your own arm. So I, um, I, so I need to preface this whole answer with a kind of a very long throat clearing of, um, I focus on self defense and what I call practical Wing Chun, um, without using those terms. Practical Wing Chun is actually the name of another Wing Chun style from Wan Sivu, who's a very good friend of mine. But I mean, in the same vein of someone attacks you and you have to be able to respond and do something. Someone grabs you, you have to be able to respond and do something. I mean, in that kind of way, that's what I do. Um, but I by no means want people to think that I'm therefore saying that people who train in sport oriented martial arts don't know how to fight, can't handle themselves on the street because on the street there are going to be no rules. That's absolutely ridiculous. Um, my good friend uh, and late podcast partner, uh, Big Sean Madigan, this was a topic we brought up quite a bit. Um, he had at one point trained with Matt Thornton uh, from uh, Straight Blast Gym, uh, who is a, you know, you could almost say very staunch anti-traditional uh, traditional martial arts uh, uh, practitioner. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, I believe also is involved in some MMA and stuff like that. And 
I, for the most part, agree with pretty much everything that Matt Thornton says, although I still am quite fond of Wing Chun because I, I enjoy the art, I enjoy the practice of the art, and I can parse out the practical elements and teach that into a kind of self-defense combatives mindset and then teach the martial art as something that I find is kind of a beautiful part of Chinese culture and but still make sure that my students know hey, on the street and you don't have to worry about how you turn and how you do the, you have to make sure that you can protect yourself and you have to be able to stop people from harming you. Um, he, uh, you know, Big Sean had learned from Matt Thornton for, for a while and Big Sean had a line which I think may have come from Matt Thornton, which is um, if you can't beat me with rules, what gives you the impression you can beat me without? Um, and or as I always like to say, like, all right, I'll give you uh, if for, for those who kind of go on the whole uh, on the street, I can kick you in the balls, I can gouge out your eyes and grab your throat and rip your hair, all this kind of stuff. OK, um, we're kind of getting into traditional jujitsu territory pre judo. And we all know how that story turned out. Um, OK, well, I'll give you you can gouge out eyes, grab the throat, grab the hair kicking the groin or whatever, you're still not stopping GSP from taking you to the ground and doing whatever the hell he wants to you. Okay, unfair advantage. He's a professional athlete. Okay, how about just some highly motivated guy who really doesn't care, who's going to run right through you and grab you and goon you onto the ground? Go ahead and try to poke out his eyes while he's trying to grab you and bring you to the ground. Go ahead and try to kick him in the groin while he's charging you full speed. Um, I don't think you can do it because I don't feel that you've actually pressure tested those things. So that's my whole throat clearing about ring fighting and sport and street thing. I, I am a traditional Wing Chun guy. Uh, I love the martial art. I'm also widely interested in self-defense as, as an aspect of what we do. Um, but I am not the sport versus street proponent guy. Um, I used to be in the old days under the Lang Teng regime. And then I had a chance to spend some time with Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners from both the sports side and the self-defense side. And also read some very interesting books about the nature of fear, the nature of martial arts and things like that. And also put that up against my own experience when I had to use martial arts to defend myself and kind of go like, yeah, I mean, self-defense is almost a separate category from martial art. Um, and okay, but we're talking about ring fighting. Sorry to go way off track there. Um, for sure, there are styles of Wing Chun that uh, adapt their Wing Chun for ring fighting, but often what you see in those, okay, if we're going to take kickboxing as an example, I know in Hong Kong, there are a couple schools that um, a couple of Wing Chun schools that send their students into Thai boxing matches. And I've watched some of those in Hong Kong. And what you see is you see a very well-trained Wing Chun practitioner who more or less goes in the ring and does Thai boxing with a couple of Wing Chun shapes thrown in. Okay, so if you go out there and you're moving like this and you're jabbing and slipping and low kicks and blocking like this and clinching and a couple elbows and every once in a while you slip a side palm punch in there and every once in a while there's a pak sao in there, okay. You're doing Thai boxing with some Wing Chun peppered in. So is this really a Wing Chun practitioner fighting in the ring using Wing Chun? Or is this a Wing Chun practitioner that has learned this uh, ring sport and then is using some Wing Chun ideas to kind of round out the edges in their arsenal? That's what I tend to think it is. Um, in the 70s, when there was like full contact Kung Fu contests in Hong Kong, you did see some more kind of tried and true Kung Fu styles going in there using their styles and fighting each other, um, including Wing Chun. Uh, the Leung Ting School had a lot of uh, famous, uh, or I shouldn't say famous, I should say a lot of success in full contact fights 
in the 70s in Hong Kong. Um, but if, if you were to see those, you would even see that the Wing Chun fighters moving around a little bit more in a boxing kind of way and just waiting for the opportunity to go in and swarm. Um, but nowadays, as um, sport fighters are just getting better and better, the ability to read angles and movement and, and not take the bait on certain things. I mean, you're dealing with a much more sophisticated fighter in the ring now. And so if a Wing Chun practitioner does want to fight in the ring, then I would highly recommend that they go and learn ring fighting. If you want to use Wing Chun in kickboxing, learn Wing Chun, but then go to a kickboxing school and learn kickboxing. All right. And don't try to mess up the kickboxing with your Wing Chun. Just learn the kickboxing. Get really good at it and then see those moments where you could throw that Pak Sao in there. See those moments when you can smother with a Bong Sao transition. See those moments when you can use some kind of close range punches and pins and things like that if it's not against the rules. But you have to kind of reverse engineer it by learning the kickboxing or learning the mixed martial arts uh, if you're going to fight in that venue or learning the jujitsu or whatever, and then finding ways to make, you know, retrofit some Wing Chun ideas in there, that would be the smarter way rather than try to take a martial art that was not designed for ring fighting and force that square peg into a round hole. It's just not going to be very successful. Um, and I also don't see it being necessary. If a Wing Chun practitioner wants to completely modify their Wing Chun to be compatible for ring fighting, I have no problem with that. There are people who go, oh, they're not really doing Wing Chun anymore. Um, I can't imagine giving a crap about what another Wing Chun school does or doesn't do. I don't see how that would affect me. I, I think it's funny when the super conservative traditional Wing Chun guys go, yeah, those guys are just mixing their Wing Chun with kickboxing as if somehow that has anything to do with you. All right, then fine. Now, now you should be happy that that other school is mixing kickboxing with their Wing Chun because that gives you a chance to stand out as even more traditional and more authentic and more original because that's the, the head that you decide to, to – or that's the big hole you decide to stick your head in uh, for comfort's sake. So um, I know that Alan Orr in the UK uh, prepares some uh, fighters for mixed martial arts. Um, I'm pretty sure um, – uh, Mark Phillips also does something similar as well, but I know that he also has Sanda at his school, so he might have some Wing Chun people who also do Sanda and then compete in that, but how much of that is actually Wing Chun? Uh, you know, different martial arts are developed for different reasons. Wing Chun for me is very kind of quick exchange short boxing for self-defense. That's it. Um, the moment you're going back and forth, this is a different thing. You need to learn that thing if you want Wing Chun to work there. Um, okay, that's all I gotta say about that. Hey everyone, just wanna let you know Wing Chun Illustrated is now offering a paperback edition through Amazon, reaching a larger global market. And no, they're not ditching the glossy magazine edition through MagCloud. You can now simply choose the version of this magazine you prefer and the one with the cheapest shipping wherever you live. Order your copy of Wing Chun Illustrated today across 12 Amazon marketplaces with free shipping for Prime members. Go and check that out. Then we have Anne Fernie Sewell asked, and again, I apologize for butchering any of these Instagram handles because I'm not sure if any of these Instagram handles are actually meant to be pronounced out loud. Uh, the thought of Kung Fu being salvaged via 3D rendering mocap positives and negatives. Um, well, uh, I would assume by this you mean uh, maybe what um, Hing Chao uh, did a few years ago by, by doing this motion capture with the masters of... Uh, certain styles of Hakka, Kung Fu Hakka being a tribe of Chinese, a nomadic tribe who are greatly responsible for many of the Southern styles uh, that we know nowadays, Southern Mantis, White Eyebrow, White Crane, all of these styles, essentially Hakka styles. But even the other 
non-Hakka Southern Chinese martial arts styles are all still kind of Hakka. Wing Chun has Hakka influence in it. Hong Kun obviously has Hakka influence in it. So we are all, if we're in the South, we are all Hakka, all right? Um, just like we are all originally from Africa, if we are all Southern Chinese martial artists, we are all Hakka, all right? Uh, to, to varying degrees. Um, so uh, what uh, Chiu Sekheng, uh, who also goes by Heng Chao, he's a kind of a very wealthy Kung Fu uh, enthusiast in Hong Kong, a number of years ago, I think we're going on 10 years or so now, um, basically did this huge 3D uh, motion capture rendering of, uh, um, you know, lots of uh, the southern martial art guys in the Hakka tribes who kind of, you know, Sifu Li Tin Loi um, and Li Kong from White, uh, uh, White Crane did this mocap so that they have all of their forms documented, not just as a video of these Sifus doing it, but as 3D digital rendering so that perhaps in the future as, you know, um, virtual reality gets better, more integrated, you could put on you know, a, a pair of those uh, virtual reality goggles and, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, you could stand in front of Lee Kong while he's doing his white crane form and look at him from all the angles and really see the positions and everything. So I think it's actually great considering that many Hakka styles are dying out. Um, and, you know, to kind of preserve it, I think is really, really good. I don't really think there are any negatives to that. Um um, maybe the only negative would be that, uh, there's a huge emphasis on, um, kind of preserving the forms and the methods. Um, but I would like to see these guys show the fighting a little bit. They might've done that. I don't know uh, how much they did in terms of the, the motion capture and stuff, but it would be really interesting to see how these guys fought and how they apply their technique so that future generations can see it in kind of more of a historical context. Um, I don't know if that's going to save Kung Fu or whatever. Uh, I don't think there really is anything that can save Kung Fu. I think Kung Fu uh, over time is going to become more of a fringe kind of cultural art that people will practice, kind of like a form of dance. I'm not saying traditional Kung Fu is dancing. I'm just saying like something like, you know, kind of preserving uh, a type of Russian dance or Turkish dance or whatever. It's going to be kind of, I think, in one of those categories. For a martial art like Wing Chun, per se, to stay relevant, I think the modern adherents are going to have to uh, improve the training methods and um, uh, especially in terms of self-defense and practical fighting to be relevant. So I think that's a matter of the leadership of future generations of Wing Chun to change with the times. I think there's been 50 some odd years of Wing Chun people really kind of buckling down in how authentic and traditional their version is. And when we now look in the modern landscape of how Wing Chun is perceived, I think we are now um, reaping uh, the ill benefits of many of our antecedents having prioritized tradition and authenticity for the last 50 years over function. Uh, if there's one god in Wing Chun worthy of worship, it should be the god of function, not the god of this is how exactly how my Sifu did it. Uh, you have to learn how the movements function. You have to learn how this works and you have to learn how you can apply flexibly against different opponents in different situations. And that's the heart of what one should be teaching and not just saying this Tan Tao is perfect because my Sifu said it's perfect. It also matches the photo of Grandmaster Yip Man. So if you're doing it this way, you're doing it the same way of Grandmaster Yip Man. So then there's the whole safety and conformity and that then becomes the conversation over I'm going to punch you in the face as hard as I can. Your job is to stop it, okay? then we it matters less the angle of the pinky finger of Tan Sao in that particular situation. 
Um, okay, uh, so I have two questions here from Felix Clemens, Felix.Clemens. Uh, one, what's your opinion about Wing Chun and MMA? Chi La La and Anderson Silva. Um, well, um, before I get to your second question, uh, I, I did talk a little bit about this in uh, two questions ago where, you know, a Wing Chun for ring fighting. So uh, at the um, expense of being uh, or the potential of being too repetitive, I'm going to try not to relitigate those talking points. You can listen to them. They were five minutes ago. Uh, there is a Wing Chun fighter, I believe he's from Taiwan, named Chi La La, who fights with uh, relative success in mixed martial arts. And you see when he goes in there, um, obviously he has to move around a little bit in a more kind of kickboxing style framework. Uh, but he's got his hands in front of him in the middle. He applies uh, Wing Chun technique, straight line concepts, and he does a really good job. He's also a finely trained athlete. And so I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think it would be easier to come from a mixed martial arts base where you have kind of those four pillars of you know, boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, and submissions or jujitsu. Um, and you have a fair kind of understanding of those four pillars. And then you can see how Wing Chun can fit into those four pillars. And then you would see Wing Chun concepts and Wing Chun ideas kind of slip through there the way you do with an Anderson Silva. Anderson Silva is not a Wing Chun guy. Anderson Silva is from the Shootbox Academy. He's a kickboxer who then learned Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and then became one of the greatest middleweights of all time. And his high level of skill and his experience in mixed martial arts is what allowed him to slip in those Wing Chun ideas. Um, although I would argue the time when he seemed to try the most amount of Wing Chun was in his fight with Bisping, which I believe he should have won. And I also believe that fight should have been called when he knocked Bisping out right at the bell. Um, I, I, I'm a, and don't get me wrong. I love Michael Bisping. I think Michael Bisping is great. I love his whole story versus Luke Rockhold and everything. And uh, um, he was someone that I absolutely hated as an MMA fighter through uh, – uh, the ultimate fighter, but then I gradually, he warmed up to me, especially after he became champion. And then now in his kind of post MMA career, I follow him on Instagram. I think Michael Bisping is great. Um, but I also think he, I also think that fight should have been called when he basically got knocked out at the bell. Um, so he definitely got saved, I think, by Herb Dean in that one. Uh, and in that fight, for whatever reason, um, Anderson decided to kind of muck around a lot. And you see him doing a lot of these kind of things, which in my opinion, that's, that looks a lot more like Filipino martial arts than Wing Chun. But of course, when you have two hands and two legs and you do anything that looks kind of like this, people go, oh, look, there's Wing Chun. And for me, Wing Chun is not the shape. Someone could throw up something that looks like a bong sao against a straight punch. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it's Wing Chun unless that person actually used a Wing Chun concept to make that work. Uh, the kind of idea you see that there's a great still shot. Uh, if you ever watch a Norm MacDonald and uh, Mike Tyson, yeah, Norm MacDonald had Mike Tyson on the show once and Mike Tyson kind of like flicked out a jab and Norm MacDonald, who's not a martial arts practitioner at all, kind of backed away and did something that looked almost like a pitch perfect bong sao, wu sao. And you see that this kind of idea of fading away from punches is somewhat innate in human beings. Um, so sometimes I just see these things as little covers. I don't go, oh, look, he's doing Wing Chun. I think there's a whole lot of confirmation bias in there. Yes, Anderson Silva's a Bruce Lee fan. Yes, he mucks around on the wooden dummy. Uh, but no, every time he backs away with his arm up like this, I'm not saying, oh, God, he's doing Wing Chun there and pointing at the screen, you know, like that meme with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio or whatever. Um, I, 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 I tend to... to to see the functional movements of Wing Chun when they're applied in MMA and go, ah, there's, 
there is uh, some Wing Chun. I thought Matt Brown, uh, a fantastic UFC fighter, uh, who's a bit more, of, I think, of a Thai boxer. Uh, there were certain fights he had where he he used things that look way more like Wing Chun, in my opinion, than a lot of the stuff Anderson Silva did. Just putting up your hands and doing things like this. Wing Chun is a style. We have a saying, ying, but chase the body, don't chase the hands. So if someone is standing there doing a bunch of Kung Fu-y looking blocks at punches coming at them, that is, in fact, not at all Wing Chun. <laughs> Wing Chun is not about chasing the hands and blocking, contrary to popular belief. So, um, you know, while Anderson definitely has his Wing Chun moments and definitely has credited Bruce Lee to his success, in, and I'm not saying that he hasn't used anything Wing Chun-like in the ring, I just think that sometimes the stuff that gives some uh, Wing Chun people a bit of a hard-on about Anderson Silva are, in fact, the things that I don't see as being actual Wing Chun. I just see them as being shapes. Uh, and Wing Chun is not shapes. Wing Chun is a concept. Wing Chun is about function. Um, and the second question here by Felix Clemens is, why is Wing Chun the most criticized martial art in the world? Uh, simple answer, um, it's not. Remember, uh, back to the whole social media question uh, at the beginning of uh, the episode today. Um, we spend a lot of time on social media. And social media is a bit insidious in this way that uh, whatever you look at, all right? And remember, when you scroll down on Instagram, even if you don't like a post, but let's say you're scrolling, 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 and you see something and you slow down. And you look at something and you don't like it, but you keep going. Instagram knows that you slowed down when you saw that. So what is it going to do? It's gonna put something else like that thing you slowed down on in your feed. So if you're a Wing Chun practitioner and something comes across your feed like 10 reasons why Wing Chun sucks or 10 reasons why Wing Chun people get obliterated in modern fights and you slow down like, what the hell is this? And even you don't like it, like, ah, what's this bullshit? And boom, and then you go like this, well, guess what? Instagram or Facebook or whatever sees, you slowed down on that article that was critical on Wing Chun. So that must mean you like articles that are critical on Wing Chun. So guess what? It's going to start feeding you that stuff and start feeding you that stuff. And suddenly, every time you go on social media, you're like, what's up with all these articles bashing Wing Chun? Why is everyone talking shit about Wing Chun? And uh, it's also for the reason, it's also, by the way, for that reason why I don't look at any Beardies videos on my YouTube channel, so or, or on, my, on my YouTube login. So when I'm logged into my YouTube, people are like, yo, man, you got to check out this BS that Beardy said, right? Or that Bruce Lee Real Fight channel or any of those kind of fake Bruce Lee wannabes. Um, I don't click on those videos while I'm logged in because then the moment I do that, I'm going to get nothing but two weeks of beardy videos suggested to me until YouTube finally realizes Alex Richter is not clicking on beardy videos. Let's stop showing it. But then it's two weeks of this, that bullshit showing up in my feed. So if I ever do look at that stuff, I will log out and either use another login from one of my like non-martial art re related emails, like my private email. And uh, or um, I will just use YouTube without being signed in and then watch that stuff um, because it's really easy for this echo chamber of your social media to be curated when and, and it's even worse when you see a video that says Wing Chun sucks. You're like, yeah, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Now you commented on a video that criticized Wing Chun. So the YouTube or Instagram or Facebook algorithm goes, you must really like videos that criticize Wing Chun because you commented on it. 
And guess what? It's going to show you more of that. So what ends up happening is you end up getting inundated in these videos and then you have the feeling like, oh, the whole world is against Wing Chun. But likewise, if you did the same thing for, you know, why a karate sucks, you would see nothing but those videos. And how do you think adherents of karate think? They think karate is the most criticized martial art in the world. Have you ever looked at what people say about Aikido online? I, it would be very difficult to say Wing Chun is the most criticized martial art in the world. Look at Aikido. I think it's pretty easy to say Aikido pretty much gets most of the shit, okay? And after then, then all the fake chi blasting guys who, you know, don't even touch the other guy and they get flying. Maybe somewhere down that list then comes Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do and Bruce Lee and all that other stuff, right? Um, so I would just say be very careful uh, about confusing what your social media algorithm is showing you with what is actually true in the world. Go up to an average person who doesn't really think about martial arts and be like, uh, what kind of martial arts do you think are good? And, I don't know, uh, jiu-jitsu or karate or whatever. They're not going to go, Wing Chun totally sucks, dude. All right? So I think you might be a victim of your own algorithm, all right? And that I'm not saying that Wing Chun cannot be criticized. Uh, I've been, I teach Wing Chun. I'm a Wing Chun Sifu. My nickname is the freaking Kung Fu genius, all right? And I'm critical of Wing Chun, all right? I think Wing Chun needs to wake up and modernize, and I, I still think it's a beautiful art that's, that's worth it. I'm not trying to be an apologist for it, because quite frankly, I hate what most Wing Chun people do, and I will not apologize for what they do. I will say it's shit, just like what other people would say. I'm not a big fan of that, including stuff from my own lineage. I mean, there's a lot of garbage out there in WT. Um, and uh, I think it's okay to be critical of the martial art that you like. I think if you don't want to criticize the thing that you like, um, then I think you have a very childish affection for it, like a way a child loves their parents. Their parents can do no wrong. When you're an adult, you, you still love your parents, but you also see the mistakes they made along the way and how you could be better for learning from their mistakes. That doesn't make you love your parents any less than you did as a child. But I think there's a childish way of loving something that you love it and you idolize it and it can have no faults. Uh, or there's an adult mature way of loving something and realizing that it's a complex topic that requires some introspection and conversation and constant refinement. Your arguments need to be constantly refined. The moment you think you have solved something is the moment you start moving backwards. So don't take criticism as a negative thing. Um, and don't think that Wing Chun is the most criticized martial art in the world. By far not. Okay, uh, last and final question. Our good friend Topher, uh, formerly that other Wing Chun guy. Now he's, it's Topher 9000. Uh, what do we have here? What books are the KFG reading right now? Uh, that's a great question for followers of the podcast. You know, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. Uh, for those of you watching this, that that these books you see back behind me, I have an entire shelf that goes all the way down to there. It's in three piles. One pile is, uh, or say one stack is about 10 books. And those 10 books are the books that I am currently reading right now. I don't read one book at a time unless it's so good and I'm so excited about it. I generally read about 10 books at a time. And I do this because um, it's actually a faster way of getting through books. I've talked about it on the podcast. Sometimes you want to read a book, you read through it, and you feel like you're slogging a little bit to get through it. And then maybe you start to feel like, I'm just kind of scanning the pages, but I'm not retaining anything. 
um, even though, but you still want to finish the book either because of pride or because you know the book is good or even the book is bad and you still read it anyway. Um, the best way to kind of deal with that, in my opinion, uh, and I learned this from a YouTube video from, you know, it was like a YouTube video, like how to read more in less time. And the main suggestion was read a bunch of books simultaneously. And I don't mean read them all at the same time. I mean, like you have a book, uh, you read it. And when you start to feel that like your eyes are starting to wander, your brain's starting to wander a little bit too much, put it down. And then you can either continue by reading another book right away, something on a totally different subject, which will change your interests and change your mindset, or you just wait a little bit and then pick up another book. So what I end up doing is I end up kind of like of those 10 current read books, I have about five that I'm kind of cycling through right now. And when one book is finished, it goes into a second pile, which is my finished, and, and I do that every year. So I have like right now about eight books I've read this year, which I'm a little bit behind schedule. I usually read a little bit more by April coming into May, um, but uh, it's just been a really difficult year of some kind of personal changes and things like that in my life and podcasts and books and all sorts of stuff. So um, I've been reading a little bit less than normal, but still, okay, eight or nine books is still kind of okay. And they're not all the thickest books in the world, um, but uh, uh, that's how I do it. So I have about five books that I'm cycling. When I'm done with one, I put that in the already read pile, take one from the to-be-read pile into the, from the other five, and I read those. And then this group here that you see there is about, I would say about 20, 25 books that I'm going to read this year. And of those books, some of them are rereads. I like to reread books, especially after a few years, see if I have a different take on a, on a book that I really like. So I have my currently reading list, my already read this year list, and then my to be read list. Uh, so I decided for Topher's question, because I've read it before, to kind of take a small chunk of my current reading list and kind of show you. I go through ebbs and flows. Sometimes I read tons of martial art books, and sometimes I don't read any martial art books, or sometimes I read books on history. Um, this book I'm reading right now is called Good Arguments by Bo Sale. He was a, um, or he is a um, debates coach. Uh, so this is about rhetoric and debate and uh, using the ideas that are taught in formalized debate um, to improve the way you communicate and um, discuss and, dare I say, argue with people in a positive and constructive way. I didn't think that debate tactics would be that helpful in uh, everyday talk, but this book is amazing. And uh, I saw a video, there's a video by Bo Seo on YouTube, you can see about arguments, it's like about a 10 minute video. That's the video that made me get this book. I'm kind of about halfway through the book right now and totally loving it. So that's one book I'm reading. Uh, another book I'm reading here is The Passionate State of Mind. This is not really a book you can read kind of cover to cover. Um, it is by Eric Hoffer. And this was one of the books that Bruce Lee quotes very uh, widely in his Tao of Jeet Kune Do. Well, we shouldn't say Bruce Lee's Tao of Jeet Kune Do. He never meant those notes to be a book called Tao of Jeet Kune Do. But in the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, a lot of the notes that he has um, are actually from Eric Hoffer. And what Bruce Lee did was he would take some of Eric Hoffer's ideas and put in Jeet Kune Do or put in martial art and kind of make it fit towards his aim, which, by the way, is what many philosophers do. And it's a book of aphorisms. So it's kind of almost like tweets <laughs> from this uh, amazing philosopher Eric Hoffer who was like a longshoreman wasn't even like college educated and these are really powerful um 
powerful little bits of philosophy. You read these little aphorisms and you stop and you think about it. And um, there's, it kind of covers so many different things and it's, you read it and it forces you to think uh, about certain aspects of your life, certain things that you're doing and kind of like, you stop and think about it. So even though these are all short aphorisms, you can't just, if you read it cover to cover, you wouldn't understand anything. You're supposed to sit and chew on these things. So this is a great book when you're sitting on the toilet. All right, you stop and you read. Uh, I am going to be taking a trip to Hungary very shortly. And I'm gonna be teaching a Wing Chun seminar there in May. And I realized I am woefully ignorant on Hungarian history. So I picked up a history of Hungary book. So it's a thin one, but you know, just to get an overview, I've been to Hungary a couple times, but my hosts over there, um, Sivu Esser Kovacs and uh, Milan Kovacs, they're always uh, such great hosts. And I love teaching Wing Chun of Hungarians. They're beautiful people who train really, really hard. And I think it, it should be my duty as a guest in their country to know a little bit about their country. So that's why I got a book on Hungary in there. And this is one that I just started reading. This is a, this is a very small print, lots of detail book uh, called The Battle for Hong Kong. And this is basically about the uh, Japanese invasion in Hong Kong in 1941, which is something that highly influenced the political landscape in Hong Kong um, post-World uh, War II uh, or the uh, post-Pacific War, as they called it. And, um, you know, this is also kind of leading into Grandmaster Yip Man coming to Hong Kong. So I figured it would be a really good idea to understand what happened to Hong Kong in the years before Wing Chun came, just to give even more historical context to my understanding of Hong Kong. I, In terms of my history of Hong Kong, I'm not a historian by any stretch of imagination, but I know a lot about 1950s, 1960s, 1970s Hong Kong. My 1940s Hong Kong understanding is not so great. And finally, I'm reading a very difficult to read book, the Quran. All right. I'm uh, a bit of a um, kind of armchair religious uh, um, enthusiast, I suppose. I am, you know, uh, for people who want to know, not this much, I'm, I'm completely atheist. I don't, don't believe in any kind of superstitious uh, um, ideas about the history of the world or how we came to be or whether they're uh, people watching over us or caring about us and that kind of stuff. But I find it an infinitely fascinating topic. And I've read the Bible multiple times. I've read uh, the Old Testament the, and the New Testament separately with dissertations and commentaries. Uh, I've read Chinese philosophy, Tao Te Ching, uh, Buddhist canon, all that kind of stuff. And the Quran was one book that I had not read. It's it's difficult to read because it's um, it's obviously any of these older texts are written in very different styles. And um, so, yeah, I find that I'm slogging through it a little bit. I think most people generally don't read religious texts cover to cover. So I'm also kind of going online and finding what the interesting bits are and reading that and and doing my best to make a little bit of sense of it. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to make any sense of it. Um, but um, it is something that I feel, you know, as a citizen of the world, I think we should be educated uh, on cultures and religions and things, even if they're not the ones that we adhere to. This is just a better way to understand our fellow human being. So uh, anyway, um, 
That's pretty much all I got to say for that. Thank you for bearing with me during a Dre and Mikey-less episode. Uh, Hope to have them back for the next one. And uh, thank you so much for bearing with me here. And uh, before we're out, you know, don't forget to like this episode and subscribe to the Kung Fu Genius. Hit that bell for notifications. And as always, if you have any questions for me for a future episode of the podcast, go ahead and put those in the comments below. And as always, I'll see you guys next time. Word is I'm a kung fu genius Technique speaks for me, not lineage Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Seagung And I produce masters, you surpassed us Your kung fu stiffer than corpse and caskets City Wing Chung is the house I built Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt Alex Richter, always the victor